Let's open God's word to the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, we'll read the chapter, the exposition of Scripture will be limited to verses 4 and 5. Jeremiah chapter 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive, in the fifth month. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down and to build and to play it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall set everyone his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof round about, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. Thou therefore gird up thy loins, and arise, and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a defensed city, and an iron pillar, and brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. We read God's holy and inspired word to that point this morning. Our text is verses 4 and 5 of the chapter. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. 
And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Beloved of God, notice how many times the word I is used in verse 5 of our text. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. The great subject of the text is not Jeremiah, but God. But God, as he relates to Jeremiah, Jehovah God is revealing to Jeremiah something about his, God's own place in Jeremiah's life. Showing Jeremiah that his place in Jeremiah's existence has been comprehensive and absolutely sovereign. When we speak of God's sovereignty, we're speaking of two things. First, we're speaking of God's legal right to rule. His legal right to rule, to determine things and to command things over which he rules. Sometimes we say that a country has sovereignty over its territory or sovereignty over its borders. That means a country has the legal right to rule over the territory that's within its borders. For God, the territory over which he rules is absolutely everything. And he has the legal right to rule over absolutely everything. Creator's rights. Overall, it's all his territory. For his people, doubly he has the legal right to rule over them. He's also redeemed them, not only created them, but redeemed them and brought him into his spiritual kingdom. Two times over, he has the legal right to rule over them. So that's first, when we talk about God's sovereignty, his legal right to rule. Second, God's sovereignty includes the power to carry out what is his legal right. France has the legal right to rule over the territory of France and over the citizens within its borders. But in World War II, when Germany comes and overruns the country, it no longer has the power to exercise what is its legal right. But that never happens with God. God has the legal right to rule over all things, but he also has the power to carry out that legal right and therefore to actually exert that rule. And nothing can stop him. There is no Germany that prevents his powerful carrying out what is his legal right. There is no demon or host of them that can stop him, weaken him, forbid him. God is sovereign. And now in this text, God is taking that wonderful, massive truth 
And he's bringing it to bear upon this individual man's life for the encouragement and comfort of this young prophet. And what he says, what God says, may be and must be brought to bear upon the lives of all of God's children individually as well. God is saying basically three things to Jeremiah about his absolute sovereignty. First, Jeremiah, I was sovereign in the planning of your life before. Notice that word's repeated twice, and that's the emphasis first. Before you were formed, I knew you. Before you came forth out of the womb, before, before, in the planning of your life, I've been sovereign. And then second, in the carrying out of that plan, in your actual existence, when you came into the world, I'm sovereign over that too and over every day of your life. I formed you. And then third, I have the sovereign right to withhold that information from you or to tell you about this. And in my sovereignty, I have pierced into the world, broken the barrier between heaven and earth, and told you, revealed to you, that I have been sovereign over the planning of your life and over the existence that you now have. And those are the three points of the sermon this morning under the theme, the sovereign of Jeremiah's life. <clears throat> sovereign purpose, a sovereign forming, and a sovereign revelation. The children of God belong to God. God is their father. They belong to him as children belong to their father. But when did the children of God begin to belong to God? It isn't merely when we repent of our sins and express faith, although that's an important time of consciously coming to belong to Jehovah God. It's not even merely at the moment when God puts the seed of new life into the heart of one of His own. Often the case, when we're born into a covenant home, that's very early in life. Not always is that the case, but often that is the case. The seed of new life is planted into the heart of his own. But even before that, is it at the cross where Jesus died and died with my name as his child upon his lips, as it were, for you, child, I am doing this. Even before that. God has an eternal decree that determined all things that would happen in time and in space. And at the center of that decree 
which is like a plan or a purpose. At the center of that is Jesus Christ himself and is a body of people that have been chosen in Jesus Christ to be his people. We call this predestination. That's the time, so to speak, time. When God's people, in this sense, began to belong to Jehovah God. If that's the truth that God is describing to Jeremiah in the text. Before I formed thee, I knew thee. Before you existed in time and space, I knew thee. I knew you as a person. And notice... Now, when God describes this marvelous decree of predestination, he doesn't use that word. He doesn't use the word predestination or even choosing or even electing, which maybe would be what we would expect here, but he uses the word no. He doesn't say, before I formed thee, I elected thee, or I chose thee, or I predestinated thee, which He could have, of course, but he says before I formed thee, I knew thee. Speaking of that same truth of eternal election, but in this particular way, I knew thee. An important way, an astounding way to speak of it. The Bible does on more than one occasion. In a way that reveals that this truth of predestination of election, this choosing and decreeing and planning from before the foundation of the world is not some abstract, cold, divine rolling of the dice, but is instead an intimate choosing of love. You probably are aware of the fact That word no describes intimacy throughout the Old Testament. The same word is used in Genesis 4 verse 1, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. It's used in Genesis 18 verse 19, for I know him, God says, I know Abraham, I've known him in intimacy so that he will command his children Hosea 13, 4 and 5, Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. And what God is saying there is not merely, I had some cognitive understanding of you in that land of great drought, but I knew you. I was intimately related to you. The word literally means to set one's heart upon, to know an intimacy and love. So that coming back to our text then, you could really translate our text. Before I formed you, Jeremiah, I had a kind of knowledge of you that was one of personal intimacy and love as my chosen child. This is the Reformed doctrine of foreknowledge. It's part of that doctrine of predestination. And it's answering for us this question. What is the starting point of predestination? 
What is the, the pond, as it were, out of which God makes this predestinating decision? Out of which, out of what did he choose certain ones to be his own and not others? And as far as the scriptures allow us to go in answering that question is to say this, it was out of the pool of love. A deep covenant love that this God who experienced knowing intimacy between the persons of the Trinity wanted to express that outside of himself to other creatures and to draw those creatures into that as far as it's creaturely possible to experience that. And so he, he set this kind of intimate, personal love that knows this way upon them. That's the pool out of which predestination arises. It doesn't arise out of the pool of the fact that he saw that certain people were going to be so lovable that they deserved to have his love set upon them, that they deserved to have this knowledge, this intimacy with him. That there were some who were fit for his love. But rather, out of an eternal love within himself, in his heart, this choosing came about in wanting to reveal that love in contrast to his justice and wrath. He set it upon some and not upon all. And this is why the apostle, when he describes the order of salvation, puts this, this intimate knowing, this foreknowledge, Logically, before predestination in Romans 8, verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he decided to love, he predestinated to be in glory with him. Those whom he decided to set his heart upon, to know in intimacy and love. And notice... And there in Romans 8, verse 29, it does not say. And the choices that he foresaw would be made led him to predestinate. Not the choices that he saw would be made, but those whom he foreknew he predestinated. as persons that he, he drew up in his divine mind, that he conceived of. He set his love upon them as individual persons conceived of in his own mind. And therefore, because he loved them, he set their destination. He predestinated them unto the end of being with him in his own house. In other words, in predestination, God did not just take a, a certain amount of the pie of humanity and, and push that part over here and say, well, that looks like about enough. Here we go. 
or he didn't reach his hand into a, a big bag of marbles and just kind of blindly and then swirl them around. Yeah, it looks like enough. But he set his love upon persons, individuals, as particular people, as he conjured them in his divine mind. He loved an Abraham as he conceived of Abraham and Isaac a John, a Paul, a Jeremiah, a you, child of God. And you may put your name there. And in the, in the very moment of his conceiving of that individual child of his, of everything that they were, their personality, everything, of what they would look like, everything, this was an, an intimate knowledge in the very act of conjuring them in his eternal mind. We're speaking, of course, about things in eternity, but how else can we speak of them? And he loved his people with a personal and intimate love. There is no such thing as an impersonal love. What is that? There is no such thing. Love is, by definition, personal and for God to love his people in eternity is this he conceives of them as individual persons and has an intimate relation with them already in his own divine mind that's foreknowledge and of them all together seeing that they would all be together and make up one body of Jesus Christ perfect he loved them individually and loved them together isn't that marvelous and wonderful to think about and to meditate upon that he had a personal love relationship with you before he ever created you, that he knew your inmost thoughts, your personality, your strengths, your weaknesses, and he was related to you, knew you, came close to you in his own mind in eternity. And that because he set his love upon you and he conceived you in his own mind, he predestinated you to live with him in his house before everything had ever been formed. Before you knew him, before you knew yourself, he was already loving you. And he did not do this with every single being that he created. Every single person that he conceived of in his own mind. Which makes it even more astounding. Others he determined to pass by and to reject in this. But knowing yourself now in your life in Jesus Christ by faith. You may trace the line back to this and say this was true in all eternity. He knew me intimately everything about me and set his love upon me. There was no delay in the fraction of a second. He conceived of me. He was in a relationship with me. And now out of that knowledge, intimate love, not only does he 
predetermined the end for his people in glory, but he also predetermines, lays out every single moment and step along the way to that end, as he did for Jeremiah. He plans out every moment and every detail of a life out of that intimate knowledge and love. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations before you were ever born. I determined your whole life for you, Jeremiah. I had the whole thing planned out. Catch that. Before you were born, I ordained you to be a prophet. Ordination into the office of prophet is something that occurs in one's life. A man has to grow up, come to a certain age and understanding, and then he is ordained, put into that office, and that is true. But there is also a sense in which I ordained you from all eternity, for I determined your whole life from beforehand in my decree. And in my determination... I did not have you as a carpenter or as a businessman or as a king, but one through whom I would speak to my people. I sanctified you. I set you apart in my own mind, in the literal sense that is, set you apart unto myself as my child, as it were. I, I, I carved you out of the race of men and determined you would be my child and determined what your life would be as my child prophet of Jehovah God. And that's not only true for Jeremiah. That's true for all God's own. And he not only in love chose his people from eternity, but set them apart and ordained the life that they have, the life that you have right now, child of God, was what he ordained in all eternity. And all that has come in it, and all the days that are not yet finalized, have all been determined. You know what that means, don't you? It means that your identity does not begin when you become self-aware. It's a strange thing about growing up, isn't it? <clears throat> As you start to grow and develop, you become more aware, not only of everything else around you, but you become more aware of yourself. You become aware of what God has put inside of you, what gifts he's given to you, what strengths, what weaknesses, what temptations are really going to affect you. And yet, my identity does not begin when I begin to get to know myself and my strengths and my weaknesses and reflect upon them. All this has been known and set out previous to what I know about myself and come to reflect upon about myself. My identity has always been set 
and is found in what God has known of me and determined about me in eternity. Jeremiah's life and even Jeremiah's salvation in one sense did not begin with Jeremiah's recognition of himself or even his recognition of his salvation. But in one sense, it began long before in eternity. Before his life existed. God had a relation of love with him. And the whole of his life was determined out of that love. And that is his identity. What a comfort that is. What a comfort that is for parents this morning. The God of the covenant who saves in the line of generations. Though it's true, he does not save every last child in the line of generations. And has not promised to save every last child in the line of generations. Speaks over the children of the church. Generally, as the children of the church speaks of them organically as his children. And we do the same until it's clear it's otherwise so that we look at the children of the church and we say he loved them. He loved them from all eternity. That he has an ancient history. This baby is new to me and I'm, I'm getting to know these children but he has an ancient history with his children already. I'm asking all these questions. What, what will this child be? I'm discovering all the aspects of their personality. And yet, he has a long ancient history with them. He's known them before they were ever born. What a comfort this is for parents who are in the difficult circumstance of perhaps having a child that they have never known at all themselves. And who have been through the difficulty of miscarriage or the difficulty of losing an infant in infancy. God sometimes determines to take his children to himself out of the same foreknowledge, foreloving, and foredetermining of their existence to bring them to that end, that predetermined end, even bypassing their parents' own knowing of that child, ever learning hardly anything about that child. And yet to be able to think that doesn't mean that child is unknown. But God has an ancient history, as it were. In the conceiving of that child in his own mind, of who that child is, in foreknowledge, in intimacy and love. It's on the basis of Jeremiah 1, 4, and 5 and other passages that the Canons of Dort says this, since we are to judge of the will of God from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but in virtue of the covenant of grace, in which they together with the parents are comprehended, godly parents have no reason to doubt of the election and salvation of their children whom it pleaseth God to call out of this life in their infancy. So that if, even if I can't know the child's personality, 
what he's like or have a relationship with him. That doesn't mean no one does. God does and has. God has a place and a plan for that child in his eternal purposes as he has a place and a plan for each one of his people in love for them. And he has the legal right and the absolute power, sovereignty, legal right, absolute power, to carry out everything that has been determined about their lives when the time comes for their lives to exist in time and in space. It's not the case that that determination was all fine and good, but now the time comes and now there's all these other forces that come into play. Evil forces that come into play. All the thousands and trillions of forces that come into play that affect this child's life so that now it is in flux. There is a question of whether or not what God has determined will in fact be brought to pass. Absolutely not. God says to Jeremiah, yes, before I formed you, I knew you. And before I formed you, I set you apart and I ordained you. But he also says this to Jeremiah, in time then, I did form you. Me. I did. And I formed you exactly as I had conceived of you in my own mind so that the same person whom I formed is the person in whom I had this relationship of love and knowledge of in my own mind in eternity. I formed you exactly as I determined I would form you. And nothing can stay my hand for I am sovereign. That was me in the womb of your mother, Jeremiah. And right there I began to carry out my determination for you. How many times don't you look at a baby with wonder and awe? God did that. And he did it exactly the way he had determined in eternity he would. When our youngest children ask us the question, Dad, Mom, where do babies come from? We don't have to squirm at that question. We don't have to get embarrassed and start fumbling over our words and what do I say or try to change the subject. This is the response. Children, children, this is where... God forms them. God does it. He comes in and he forms them in the womb of mother. Knits them together. And that's the Hebrew word for form as though like a potter with a piece of clay with his hands, he forms this little one completely sovereign over every detail of conception and everything from there on out of birth and upbringing. That's what forming means. That forming is the is the beginning of a carrying out of an entire life that has been predetermined. Think about it with respect to Jeremiah. Is it merely a coincidence 
that Jeremiah was given to a priest for a father and a wife of that priest from Anathoth had to be. That wasn't optional. He had to be given to a priest and a priest's wife for parents. He had to get his genes from those two people specifically. Where would he get his fire and his passion from as a preacher, as a prophet? Where would he get his boldness and yet his sensitivity and his melancholy that Jeremiah is known for? Everything that God wanted this particular prophet to have at this time and this place in the history of his people. It would come in part through the genes of his parents, these two, Hilkiah and his wife, and nobody else. Where would Jeremiah get his faithfulness to Jehovah God in an apostate age as Judah was in? Filling that God-given personality, that genetic makeup with a God-word obedience and directive so that his understanding of the times in which we live, his true religion in in a place where religion was so formal or outward. Of course, God gave that to him. God worked that in him sovereignly. But he gave it also through the means of his parents, a godly father and mother who themselves understood the times. A godly father and mother who brought him faithfully under the chief means of grace. Week after week, it's striking when you read Jeremiah's prophecy that it's very similar to the prophecy of Hosea. Hosea was a bit older than Jeremiah. Likely Jeremiah listened to Hosea preach regularly as he grew up. Under the means of grace, Jeremiah would be developed as God controlled his life, where he would be placed, in what home, with what parents, how he would be raised, that he might be the prophet he was called to be. This is God's sovereignty too. Not only that he foreknew and ordained before, but that he then carries it out in the lives of his children. And he still does this in accord with his eternal decree. A decree that sets itself upon his people in personal love. God plans which children will be given to which parents at what time, at what place. And he carries that out perfectly. He's determined that Weston would be given to this set of parents and not to any other set of parents. That he would get his genetic makeup from Brad and Jessica and not from others. Determined that he'd be born into this congregation so that their lives and the lives of all of you would pour into him because after all it takes more and the graces that can fill up two parents to raise a child. And in the covenant community, church, home, and school, all those graces would pour in. He determined all of this for this little being that he now places here and determines how he will grow and develop in this. Let's make four applications of that truth, that the God who determines eternally also carries out that determination in the lives of the child, when and where they are born. Number one, 
It certainly tells us then that the conception of every child is not by chance. It's not something that just happens. And sometimes, even if we parents might say, it was a surprise to us, or sometimes we parents might even use that word accident to us, it's no surprise to God and no accident to God. Perfectly determined from all eternity at that moment. It might not have been our plan, but always His plan. Second, this certainly says something, does it not, of the evil of abortion. That God Himself says, I formed thee. In your conception, I formed a, a you, Jeremiah. You didn't become a you later. But you. Not a fetus, not a lump of tissue, but a you, a person. And to murder that you is to murder a person. Third, we can glean something here from this passage and others throughout Scripture that it is the case that God often sets apart our children, children of believers, in time that come into the world, in time unto Himself, spiritually, even before they're born as He did with Jeremiah here, in order to set Jeremiah apart for his task as a prophet, He had to set him apart in regeneration in order to form Jeremiah as a prophet of Jehovah God. He had to form him as a spiritual being, a spiritual person with new life in him. Jeremiah did not grow up outside of the covenant people of God as a pagan who then had a Pauline kind of a conversion, but he was raised as a child of God and experienced conversion at a young point in his life and continued to experience that daily as he went through his life. Something that often happens for the children of the church. Not always, but often happens. And fourth, we can learn from this that God has a calling, or callings, plural, for each of us in His mind already from eternity when He forms us and brings us into this world. He has purposes for us. Not all like Jeremiah's to be prophets, but whatever position He has you in right now, if it's, a, if it's a lawful and a wise position to be in, it's a position that He has determined from eternity for you to hold and that He's been forming you to hold Whatever it may be, whether it seems great in the eyes of men or seems small in the eyes of men, He ordained it for you, including your position as a parent, parents. He ordained you 
from eternity past to be the parents of the specific children that he gave to you. And he formed your life in accord with his eternal decree so that you could be the parents of this child and he formed that child exactly the way he wanted to come forth from you and to be parented by you. Isn't that helpful? We feel so insufficient sometimes. But he has ordained this from eternity and has ordained our forming from eternity that we might be given these children, not somebody else's children, these children with these genes, this personality, these traits. And he wants it this way. He doesn't want it any other way, but this way. As part of his purpose. And he will use it for the purpose that he has for these children. For the part that they play in his kingdom as he used it for Jeremiah and the part that he was to play in the kingdom of God. And he wants you to know that. Like he wanted Jeremiah to know this. Jeremiah needs to know this. He needs to know the absolute sovereignty of God over his life, existence, in eternity and in time. This cannot remain hidden from this man. He needs this right now. And he needs this because Jeremiah is full of doubts. And therefore, God pierces the barrier between heaven and earth and he comes with a word for the prophet that's not, first of all, a word for the prophet to declare to everybody else, although he'll write it down later for us, the church. But it's first a word for him. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. The very revelation of that to Jeremiah is itself an act of intimacy and love. Because this is what Jeremiah is thinking, and so this is what he says. Ah, Lord God, but I'm a child. How can I do this thing that you're calling me to do? Jeremiah was a teenager at the time. And maybe he's exaggerating a little bit by saying he's a child, but you get his point. I'm not qualified for this task. I can't speak properly. I'm too young. Besides that, Judah... Look at the state of Judah now and you want me, a teenager, to go out and begin to prophesy to this wicked and stubborn and rebellious nation? And not only that, you're calling me to be a prophet beyond Judah to the nations? I'm a teenage boy. And so God comes to Jeremiah and reveals to him, this is what I planned and determined for you from eternity. Jeremiah, I loved you before anything was made. I carved you out of humanity to be my child. And I formed you exactly the way I determined you would be. I had you raised in the precise home I wanted you to be raised with, with the genes that were given to you. Your existence has been sovereignly determined by me. You didn't just happen to be born at this time or in this way. And so if I'm calling you to do this, you must do this. It's for Jeremiah's encouragement, his comfort, to spur him on in his callings. And it is for our comfort 
and encouragement and to spur us on in our callings that he reveals this to us. Not precisely the same way, but reveals it to us. Sometimes you'll hear people say, yes, God's eternal decree is in the Bible, but you should never preach about it. That's something for, for theologians to talk about when they get together and have coffee, but don't say it to the people. You just go to the pulpit and you tell the people what they do, what they're supposed to do, and then you... It's wrong. He revealed it for a reason. He wants us to know this. It's part of our encouragement. It's part of what spurs us on to take up the callings that He's given to us in our lives. I've known you from eternity. I have an ancient history with you already. And if you are called to this right now, then I have set you apart for this and I've ordained your life and I've formed you unto this. So that whatever position you have, the place you've been given, whether you feel like you're so equipped for it or or not, He's been forming you for this. For the glory of his own name, for your comfort, for our good. Praise be to him. Amen. Father, bless thy word to our hearing, strengthen our faith as we meditate upon these marvelous things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.